Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Voters will elect at least three new district attorneys in Massachusetts this year. Whoever wins will determine how nonviolent crimes are handled and long-term criminal justice reform. Plus, the doomed voting rights bills have sunk on President Biden's watch. Does this set the tone for his second year in office? And Massachusetts' seven-term Secretary of State, a Democrat, will face off against a formidable Democratic challenger, Boston NAACP President Tanisha Sullivan. It's our Mass Politics Profs Roundtable. Later in the show, with a pandemic-forced isolation as a backdrop, three local artists have created work which explores the power of community. The 2021 Foster Prize winners bring a sharp insight to current issues. The Foster Prize winners specifically commissioned pieces on display now at the Institute of Contemporary Art. But first, joining me now, Erin O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Erin. Hello, hello. Glad to have you. And also with me, Louise Jimenez, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Louise. Thank you. Always happy to be here. And Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Thanks for joining us, Gerald. Happy to be here as always. <laughs> All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Well, let's jump in with President Biden's first year, which he reached that anniversary last week. And um wasn't a good time for him. <laughs> it doesn't seem like sort of all hell breaking loose on on several fronts. And his approval ratings are low. Not that that should be the be all and end all of anything. Just to want to do a round robin with each of you about where do you see his presidency after this first year? I'll start with you, Gerald. Well, the President Biden's uh, sort of promises to do a couple of things that are hard to do together have been, you know, bedeviled him. Obviously, his goal of of recreating or coming back to a more bipartisan, unifying politics, along with the sort of democratic policy agenda, these these are mutually exclusive goals, and they would be even if there weren't two uh, conservative Democratic senators further mucking up the works in the Senate by uh, opposing filibuster reform. So I think ultimately in the big picture, because he has is wedded and has been wedded to this notion of bipartisanship, a notion that is all but extinct at this point, he's he's really having a, a particularly difficult time in navigating what a lot of Democrats have to navigate, and that is a policy agenda that is very progressive uh, and, a, and a political environment that really is more rewarding to uh, more moderate forces. Um, Louise, do you see him changing the way that he approaches trying to get his agenda accomplished 
after this marker? I mean, we've we've had the first year now. He's seen what it is. Do you see anything changing from what Gerald has said, in ter- particularly in terms of his efforts around bipartisanship? That's an excellent question. I don't think that he's going to have much of a choice um, because the BBB bill, for instance, uh, seems to be dead, and now it seems like they're going to break it up in pieces. The voting rights is probably also dead. So if he wants to get anything done, I think he's going to have to change some approach or change his approach. But the problem is it's not like he has a lot of uh, room to maneuver anyway. I guess what they're going to have to do is do something that is mansion-friendly and maybe try to get some of the moderate Republicans. But that's going to make a lot of people unhappy on his side. So he really doesn't have much room to maneuver. But nonetheless, if he wants to get something done, he's going to have to change something. What say you, Aaron? I'm going to use a Biden-esque term. You know, the man is between <laughs> a rock and a hard place. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah, very yeah. antiquated. Um, uh, you know, we've seen some changes. He went to Georgia and made an outward-facing speech that many who are pushing for voting rights love the speech. They just wish the speech was a year ago. So it's sort of that he is pivoting, but the question is, is he pivoting too late? Um I think, you know, the rock and the hard place is because he's got a 50-50 Senate. We've got these two senators that individuals in the United States know by name. Uh, That's not good news for the Biden administration. And I think that, you know, thus far, I think the irony of his presidency is that he is the man America wanted in the election. There were much more progressive choices amongst the Democrats. And Joe Biden emerged and emerged pretty handily. But he promised a D.C. that was undeliverable. Mm-hmm. And so he set expectations that he couldn't deliver. Now, I think he truly believed them. I think he thought he could fix Washington. A lot of us thought, how could you think that? And uh, a lot of us were right, unfortunately. But I think he needs to pivot. And I think he also needs to further um, problematize Republicans who are not going ar- along with his plans. Can I, can I just uh, add one more thing? Uh, just to get some perspective, it, it's important to, to, to point out that, you know, we're, we're, we're noting that he's between a rock and a hard place, but it's not as if he hasn't had any successes, right? Uh, the, the persistent low uh, approval ratings sort of belie material successes, obviously the infrastructure bill and other things. There have been material successes in many ways in terms of the performance of the economy. This is a president who would be getting higher grades. So there, it's a it's a real anomaly, right? This idea that he's he's not having success. He is clearly not having the success he promised. That he overpromised is probably a given. Uh, the environment that causes those overpromises to appear to have to actually produce failure that's that's brand that's a new kind of a thing. That's a that's a post-Trump or a Trump era kind of a thing. Mm. Let, let me add to that because the, the key point here is what Gerald said is the the environment because in the end what's causing this in my view is that something has zero control over which is COVID. As long as COVID continues in the way that it is, I just don't see that he can get much more approval. I mean, because people, I think a lot of people really thought, okay, now we're going to have somebody that is uh, capable or promises to do this or that, and COVID will be over, we can move on. If that was happening now, I don't think that his approval ratings would be as low. That's a good point. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, which is something that I was going to underscore, because I think he 
himself is shocked with the kind of organization and ability that he brought with his teams that he couldn't get a handle on this because it's just turning out to be what it is, which is a virus that we don't understand and never seen before. And it requires stuff that nobody's ever done before. So here we are. COVID ruins everything. Yes, it does. (laughs) That's just my takeaway. (laughs) So of the issues that he identified, coronavirus, climate, economy, and racial justice, before coming into office, coronavirus has been obviously overhanging everything. But the racial justice piece really comes into play with regard to this voting rights legislation. Let's take a listen to President Biden after he met with senators about voting rights legislation. This is before the bills went onto the floor. I hope we can get this done. The honest-to-God answer is, I don't know whether we can get this done. But one thing for certain, one thing for certain, like every other major civil rights bill that came along, if we miss the first time, we can come back and try it a second time. I'm curious about, Louise, I'll start with you. How does he see coming back a second time? You know, I just remind um, everybody listening that about six or seven months ago, he was making another speech in which he suggested that organizers and maybe specifically African-American organizers weren't trying hard enough <laughs> to put this before people for which he got, you know, roundly criticized and he himself had to address it. But I- I'm not clear how he comes back a second time. People want to see that happening. But what do you see happening? Well, in terms of the structure, I have been reading about possibilities of trying to get around the filibuster. Like they're talking about, for instance, doing a talking filibuster, forcing the Republicans to talk it out. And if that happened, eventually they would get tired out and then they could pass the bill. That's one way that maybe, but this seems to be a very long shot. I think what he's saying here, it's more of a promise that he's not going to give up completely on this as opposed to something more concrete where he could actually come back. But, you know, other than that, other than getting around the filibuster, I just don't see how he could because there's the votes are simply not there. And I, I want to point out, Aaron, that there are two pieces or there were two pieces of legislation in question. One, the Freedom to Vote Act, which tried to get out ahead of some of the bills in 19 states, which are clearly undermining certain populations' efforts to vote, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would have essentially replaced some of the critical pieces of the original Voting Rights Act of 1965. And one more piece, that when this legislation was passed in 1965, uh, there were people on wildly opposite ends of the ideological spectrum who voted it in and who have since, remaining on wildly ideological opposite ends of the spectrum, continue to support it because the principle of voting rights from everybody was respected. But I don't know, that doesn't appear to be the case now. I know there are lots of people in the Republican group who believe otherwise, but as far as the vote is concerned, they're not intending to change their vote about it, Aaron. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Voting rights in the United States has always been wildly politicized. But, you know, like you talked about 1965 and some of the major civil rights acts that we got voting rights or that individuals got voting rights. 
um, there was some bipartisan agreement. And I don't want to overstate it, but some Republicans went along with it. Um, and, you know, you had Southern Democrats at the time who found it much more problematic than, you know, the, um, the New England Republican. And so what we've seen in, and this predates Trump, I want to be important, but Trump further punctuated in the 2000, or what we just have, sorry, the 2020 election, the ways in which we responded to COVID by saying, you know, um, early voting, vote by mail, Donald Trump, when he lost the election, blamed some of those changes. And so I think any members of the Republican Party who may have gone along with things like voting rights that are quite basic, equal access to the ballot, once Trump politicized those and linked it with electoral fraud, you lost the states person, uh, back in the day, the states men, who would go along with voter access because it is in keeping with, you know, the American ideal. And I just want to add one more thing before you respond, Gerald, for people listening, thinking, you know, why did I and and why did President uh, Biden uh, categorize this as part of his racial justice issues? And that is because with the big lie, which has uh, been promulgated by former President Trump and all of his henchmen, all of that was focused on communities of color. There is no mistake in places where he lost, where the population was mostly white, there was no legislation to call it fraud. There was no attempt to turn it around. There was no push to make sure all the votes were counted. This only happened, let me repeat, in communities of color. It's a racial justice issue. Now, Gerald, go ahead. Yeah, no question about that. And one of the contrasts between the the, the politics of the, the mid-late 20th century and today, of course, is that it's not an ideological debate. It is certainly true that when we look at, uh, when we just talk about ideology, voting rights is, po- is popular across the board, but we don't have an ideological politics today. We have a polarized partisan politics, not based on ideology, but rather based on a, a more uh, uh, tribalistic uh, form of of partisanship it's it's a it's a culture war thing so it's the, the what we call sometimes conservatism today the the of the trump variety or the republican party variety is not the ideology of conservatism right it is cultural populism right so we're today we're dealing with a divisive politics because we're dealing with cultural populism versus economic populism we're not dealing with liberal versus conservative and those and when you're dealing with populism against populism that's far less i mean that that we have much less civil discourses shouldn't surprise any of us when we're dealing with essentially you know populist extremism uh in, in combat here so it's a very different uh, politics. And even though we could talk about great divisiveness of the 60s and 70s and 80s, we're really in a, just as or more divisive period, but based on a different thing. And it's much more cultural and much more deeply ingrained. Can I add to the racial justice issue? I want to underscore that um, the representative from Washington, D.C. yesterday, the non-voting representative, pointed something out, which was uh, if Washington, D.C., which is a majority black and, and brown place, if they had their chosen representation, that is, if they uh, could be a state, this conversation would be completely different because all of these things that we're talking about uh, would have passed. Uh, there would probably be no filibuster, and all the agenda that we're talking about uh, would be completely different. 
And so that really shows you, right? It, it would be, it would be, the political reality would be completely different, but they don't have representation. So. I would argue that 19 states have also proven the exact same point by changing the laws in those states to make certain that certain communities do not have access or have less power at the polls. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. We're discussing the latest local and national political news. Let me switch to Governor Baker. Two things. A, he's not running for office again, and I want to put that together with his reiteration that he has not changed his mind about a statewide mask mandate. I bring that up because I believe that COVID is a driving reason for why he decided to step away. I'll get you all to respond to that after we listen to Governor Baker. If locals wish to pursue alternative options, they can do so. We issued a mask mandate last fall because we had no other options available to us. At this point in time, we have vaccines, we have rapid tests, we have our testing sites, and people know a lot more about what works and what doesn't with respect to combating the virus. And if people wish to add an extra layer of protection by wearing a mask in indoor settings, we would urge them to do so, especially when we have cases rising across the Commonwealth. So I just want to underscore the last point that he made because he's urging people to wear masks indoors and he's already deployed the National Guard to help with uh, the level of stress at uh, local hospitals. Um, So to all of you, uh, did he step away because he just couldn't take this COVID stuff anymore? Aaron? Uh, I think two. I think that his reasons are twofold. One, COVID. Uh, just as a, a on a personal front, on a humanity front, I think all of us can recognize that anybody in high stakes elected office, like Governor Baker, the last two years have been downright miserable. You're making decisions. You know, do you do the mask mandate? Do you not? Do you close schools? Do you not? That have no good answers. People die based on your decisions. Like that is hard. And I think it's wildly personally taxing. And I think that is definitely, you know, 50% of why he's not running. And the other 50% has to do with the fact that um, the GOP party administration, uh, not the GOP electorate necessarily in Massachusetts, um, but, but the GOP party structure in Massachusetts hates him. And I know that's a strong word, but it's correct. They're actively organizing against Charlie Baker. They gave him a a Trump conservative to run against in the primary. Don't get me wrong. If Charlie Baker won again, all my money's on him. He may or may not have won the GOP party nomination, but he could have run as an independent and won. And very rarely do we say that in politics. But I think both things are going on. He doesn't feel like fighting his own party with another you know, Trump sort of thing boiling up in a state that has no taste for it. And to your point, I think COVID has taken a personal toll. I'll add the last part, he's rich. Mm. <laughs> he mm. doesn't need the check. Yeah. Um, so Massachusetts might need him more than he needs Massachusetts. Louise? Yeah, I completely agree. COVID has been completely corrosive for our trust in government. If you are in elected office, any decision you make, there's a lot of people, very vocal people, very stubborn people um, who, you know, the whole thing with the masks and vaccines, the anti-vaxxers and so on, um, that make it, I think, very, very difficult to do anything, to govern without having constant criticism. Um, the, 
the Boston mayor and, you know, everyone else, I mean, from any kind of high office um, suffers from this. So, frankly, I don't think, it, you know, normally it's probably not that much fun anyway to be the governor. But <laughs> under these circumstances, I think it's, it's, it's really bad. And as Aaron rightly points out, he doesn't need this. Why, you know, set yourself to do this when uh, you're not getting much pleasure out of it? Mm. And Gerald. Yeah, I, I agree with my colleagues, of course, but I would add that um, he, interestingly, when he announced that he wasn't going to run, one of the reasons that he gave, uh, which is probably, uh, you know, boilerplate in these sorts of things, I think is resonates as really true. And what he said was he wants to really focus on governing over his last year in office. Now, normally we'd expect someone bowing out to say that, right? But in Massachusetts, the governor can't be effective without the cooperation of legislative leaders. Cooperation that has been uh, less civil, less uh, helpful because they've been sort of pressured into opposing him over the last year, especially with regard to COVID, but also with regard to uh, police reform. In other words, progressives in Massachusetts haven't had a, you know, have, have been dealing with this guy for two terms. There's never been a Republican who served more than two terms in the four-year era or any era for that matter. And so he was looking at a year of campaigning and trying to work with Democrats on the Hill that would probably probably have damaged his legacy. So his not going forward is for all the reasons we're talking about, but there's an institutional reality here. And that is that the governor is the junior partner in governing on Beacon Hill, not the senior partner. Mm. The, the president of the Senate and the speaker are the two of the three big three, and they have much more uh, sort of influence than the governor does. And so he understood that they would be very strongly pressured by progressives not to sit on their hands the way they did in 2018. It would be hard for them not to be adversarial to the governor, and that would make it hard for the governor to accomplish things, and it would also stain his legacy. I am moving on. Um, there are three prosecutor positions open in Massachusetts. The ACLU did a great job last go-round of part of its national campaign of you know, letting people know what does a district attorney do so that people would understand that what the breadth and depth of their responsibilities were. And I think that did a lot to make people pay attention. Um, Rachel Rollins won in Suffolk County in the midst of that kind of campaign. Now we have three prosecutors. The question is, will they sort of go in the direction she has gone and others across the country of, of decriminalizing, if you will, um, nonviolent, low-level crimes and moving toward criminal justice reform? Um, I will start with you, Erin. I think this is uh, obviously very exciting. And what I find so interesting about this in the Massachusetts context is, you know, our national reputation for being so blue. Um, but a lot of the DAs have been much more of the, you know, law and order ilk, um, uh, conservative, conservative Democrats, some uh, Republicans in there. This, uh, I look at the race in particular um, with uh, Rasan Hall, who hasn't formally announced, but is, you know, fundraising in Plymouth County. I'll make my declarative statement that he's running. Continue. <laughs> yeah, I, I will as well. Um, that to me is a, you know, a South Shore race, and it really um, tests the Massachusetts taste for progressive DAs, for DAs whose first inclination isn't lock them up, restorative justice, um, looking at racial disparities. So I think uh, when we look to see how these DAs do or do not win in additional counties in Massachusetts, 
is another test of that Massachusetts liberalism. And I look at the race in Plymouth County in particular, because the South Shore is known as being slightly more conservative. I'm particularly interested in that race where you've got the former director of racial justice at the ACLU against, you know, a 20 year incumbent Republican. That's a race to watch. Okay, Louise. Uh, you know, the district attorneys in general, I think they're, they're such important positions that people don't pay much attention to. And I don't think that the public realizes um, how important they are because, for instance, um, I was just reading recently about how there's an epidemic of people admitting to crimes they have not committed, in part because of prosecutors and the way that the system depends almost entirely on people not going to trial. These are all related to prosecutors. But the problem is uh, that always, because people don't know about it, they just assume that, you know, what prosecutors should be doing is they should be uh, enforcing laws and putting, you know, criminals in prison. But it's not that simple, right? There's always, with any crime, there's always some level of, of choice of what gets criminalized and not. So uh, I'm very excited that there seems to be more attention paid to this in Massachusetts. Uh, and that's, I think, very good news. And Gerald. I think that it would be tremendous for, uh, you know, for law enforcement if progressive DAs were getting elected. But when I look at the question of what kind of prosecutors do Massachusetts voters want, and I think of my, you know, I'm a West, I'm the Western Mass Politics Crawford member, and I think of Hamden County and Berkshire County, and I, and I, and even, and even Hampshire County, and I think that uh, it's difficult. Uh, although Hampshire County's had some progressive DAs, I think it's, it's, uh, it's difficult for progressives to run for district attorney in most of Massachusetts. Uh, and it, and it, it, it it's is. a lower visibility race, and it's not the kind of race that voters, uh, the average voter, invests a great deal of, a, uh, of attention to. And so it's a real uphill climb for a progressive DA candidate. If the Plymouth County race is won by a progressive candidate, I think that would be a real, uh, a very, a very positive uh, thing for progressive law enforcement advocates. And I, I think it's telling that they're running. What they saw with Rachel Rollins, what they saw with Harrington and the Berkshires, is that the progressive can run and run against the party establishment. That is, there's a new confidence. It's not a foregone conclusion that the progressive is going to win by any stretch. But the fact that they're willing to put their names in for the race tells me that um, Rachel Rollins and Harrington have coattails for DAs in other counties in Massachusetts. Okay, moving on. Boston NAACP President Tanisha Sullivan launched her campaign for Massachusetts Secretary of State this week. Let's take a listen. I'll champion policies to protect, defend, and expand voting rights here in Massachusetts and across our country. I'll do more to open our government and help make it accountable to you by ensuring the accessibility and transparency of our public records. And using the powers of this office, I'll promote economic prosperity, protect your investments from fraud, and tackle economic inequality. Now, what makes this interesting is that Bill Galvin, who is a seven-term <laughs> Secretary of State, uh, will be opposed by Tanisha Sullivan, who brings a formidable resume and reputation in this town. He was, uh, to my knowledge, only really opposed seriously by uh, the former city councilor, and he beat him. I mean, just it was a huge landslide. Uh, so now she's announced, and also Raylan Rayla Campbell 
who unsuccessfully challenged U.S. Representative Ayanna Presley in 2020 for her job. Uh, Rayla Campbell is a Republican. So potentially there may be two black women in this race because Rayla is black as well as is Tanisha. And if Bill Galvin elects to stay in the race, then those would be the three candidates thus far. Um, Want to get your take, Erin? I'm excited. <laughs> uh, and in part because, you know, one of the areas I really uh, do research in is voter access in Massachusetts. And just like you cited Josh Stakem, who, who went down handily uh, against Bill Galvin. But what he did is he pushed Bill Galvin left. In 2008, this election performance index, I won't get into the weeds, but it's like 17 indicators on how well um, states run elections. In 2008, we were 32nd in Massachusetts. In 2012, we were 22nd. By 2016, we're ninth. Um, we're moving up. Well, actually, 11th now. What that uh, what that shows is Massachusetts has made major changes to voter access. Um, counterintuitively, because Democrats basically control the state, they don't seek out changes that make it easier to vote. Because Zakum ran against Galvin, Galvin got pushed to the left. So um, Tanisha Sullivan, uh, one of the other things that she's run on is things like voter access, including same-day registration, which we don't have in Massachusetts. So this is yet, we've talked about a couple of these races, but Sullivan is trying to make Massachusetts number one in voter access. And Bill Galvin has only moved when he's received challengers. So I find the dynamics of this race really interesting in terms of having a Republican there. Like, that's nice, but um, it's a placeholder. Running against Ayanna Presley is, uh, is you're taking one for the team. You're not going to beat her. And I do not think she will be um, uh, remotely uh, influential in a Galvin-Sullivan showdown. Louise? Well, there has never been a woman, uh, a secretary of the Commonwealth. There has never been a person of color, a secretary of the Commonwealth. And as you mentioned, Galvin is a seven term or something. Since 1995, he's been there. Uh, I think that's in part because this is one of those uh, positions that it's also low visibility, but has some important uh, powers. Uh, so it's, I think it's, this is part of the same pattern we've seen with uh, all kinds of offices where people of color are getting um, involved, and that's a good thing. Um, but it's also, I think it does break, competition is always good, as, as um, uh, Aaron points out, even in, in the case of a Republican uh, uh, candidate, also that is a person of color. Uh, it's always good to bring visibility to the issues uh, of offices like this. Um, whether or not she can win is a different is a different question. Mm. And Gerald, last word. You know, the, the question of whether or not she can win, it's a hard one. Uh, because he is a seven-term uh, incumbent. He is, uh, now, uh, Aaron said something that's really important. He he does move when challenged. And we can look at that two ways. You could say, uh, you know, oh, he only moves when challenged, or you could say, hey, he moves when challenged. In other words, he knows <laughs> when to move. Right now, he, so, so he's, you know, he's good at this, right? So if I, you know, in one sense, I would say, okay, he, he understands that the issues that are most important to her have legs here. They, the, these, these election issues, access 
access issues, they're part of the national dialogue here. They're they're important to people. They're 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 high visibility issues. And if she has a platform uh, that that's going to that's going to help her, right? Well, he understands that, and he is going to just emphasize the things that he's already for in that regard. He's going to try to co-opt her on this issue. Now, I would say this is a question we should be asking, is he going to run? Because, you know, if he announces, you know, if he if he announces his decision whether or not to run later than he normally would, I think we know why. And I wouldn't be surprised if this was his opportunity to retire. Hmm. Well, we'll see. And we'll have you back to talk about it when we do. But in the meantime, thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Hmm. Our pleasure. Thank you. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Luis Jimenez is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And Gerald Duquette is an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. Coming up, three local artists have stepped into the limelight with work commissioned by the Institute of Contemporary Art as winners of the Foster Prize. The Boston-based artists are using their mediums to process society's most pressing issues. The large-scale installations devote themes of shelter to the Black Lives Matter movement. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. (laughs) 